Unshackled of Pacific Garden Mission presents History's Greatest Sermons, where we share the personal history of godly men who brought forth the truth of the gospel in powerful sermons to a world long ago. Can you imagine sitting at the feet of one of history's greatest preachers and hearing their greatest sermons? Picture yourself on an old wooden pew in Charles Spurgeon's London Church or perched in a tree in the fields of a George Whitfield revival, or striding down the sawdust trail at a Billy Sunday prayer meeting. Whatever the scene, hearing these great sermons from the past will be as fitting to today's Christians as the day they were first preached. And now, here are your hosts, Tim Lundeen and Kelly Robbins. Welcome back. You're tuned into History's Greatest Sermons. And we've been listening to Martin Luther, yeah. one of the great reformers. Part one and part two go together. So I'm hoping that you had a chance to listen to part one. If not, you might want to head back and hear part one of Law, Faith, and Love to Your Neighbor. You can hear that by downloading our app, and all of History's Greatest Servants are right there at unshackled.org. Yes. The app is available on all of your favorite devices, so make sure you grab it. Um, So Martin Luther's sermon, Law, Faith, and Love to Your Neighbor, Mm -hmm. the first half, he really locked in the idea that the law is there to show us that we can't work our way uh, out of the debt that we owe. We can't work our way into salvation, which, of course, went against everything that he was trained in, everything that he was doing. Yes. Um, everything that had been taught yes. by the church yes. and everything that everyone around him understood. Yeah. And he had taken it to the nth degree. He had. He was a Peter. He was when when he was in the stories that I'd read when he was in one of his monasteries he, um, I mean, he really went to the extreme. It was scaring the novices. It was scaring them like, this guy's really serious. I so mean, he's, we have to he's not eating. Yeah. He's beating himself. He's uh, constantly in the confessional. He's doing all of these things. And it's like. Not enough, not enough, not, not enough, enough, not enough. Yes. And I think ultimately that's what the spirit showed Luther. Mm. Because everything that he tried, you could increase the list tenfold and it would still not be enough, which is the gift of the law. The law teaches us that. The problem is that they were being taught that at some point it was enough. And if it wasn't, you could go get an indulgence. Oh, yeah. Just pay a couple bucks. And then you're good. Throw a couple coins in a coffer and and we'll kind of alleviate the pain that you're going to suffer in purgatory, maybe get you closer to God. See, now, looking at it now, it's like, well, that's obviously an abuse. The only reason why we know that is because we have the word of God. We have the very word of God. Which the populace didn't. They didn't. They only had the mouthpiece of those who were teaching them. And I'm going to use a word. The word would be transactional. Hmm. They were being taught a transactional picture of their faith. If I do this, then God. Right, right. And that is ultimately a way to control God. And that's never going to work. The creator of the universe cannot be controlled. He can't be bribed. No, he can't be bought. And he can't be bought. Or fooled. Yeah. And in his spirit, Luther came to know, it does not matter what I bring to the table. Never enough. But there's the but. Yeah. But God. Yeah, yeah. Right? And the the one thing he he just closed on this first half of his sermon, this idea that, here I'll quote it, if an upright heart that comes to the point of knowing itself is met by the law, it will certainly not seek to help itself by works. It's almost like he's reminding us the law is necessary for the gospel. Once we're confronted with the law, yes. we'll realize, oh, 
Well, my works aren't going to cover this. I can't do this. There's nothing I can bring. Yeah. That drives us to God. Just say, I'm a sinner. I'm helpless. I'm a transgressor. Help me. I'm lost. Yes. That's that's all the most we can do. That is our work. You know, that's a, that's about it. And yet the seed within us always leads us to say, well, maybe I can help a little. Hmm. Maybe I can be a little less deserving of this whole thing. I don't know. We'll have to see what he has to say in part two. This is Martin Luther and his sermon, Law, Faith, and Love to Your Neighbor. But what is this gospel? It is this. God has sent his son into the world to save sinners and to crush hell, overcome death, take away sin, and satisfy the law. But what must you do? Nothing but accept this and look up to your Redeemer and firmly believe that he has done all this for your good and freely gives it all to you as your own. In the terrors of death, sin, and hell, you can boldly depend upon it and confidently say, although I do not fulfill the law, although sin is still present and I fear death and hell, nevertheless, from the gospel, I know that Christ has bestowed upon me all his works. I am sure he will not lie. He will surely fulfill his promise. And as a sign of this, I have received baptism. For he said to his apostles and disciples, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Upon this I anchor my confidence for I know that my Lord Christ has overcome death, sin, hell, and the devil for my good. For he was innocent. As Peter said, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Therefore, sin and death were not able to slay him, and hell could not hold him. He has become their Lord and has granted this to all who accept and believe it. All this is effected not by works or merits, but by pure grace, goodness, and mercy. Now, whoever does not claim this faith for himself must perish, and whosoever possesses this faith will be saved. For where Christ is, the Father will come, and also the Holy Spirit. There will then be pure grace, no law, pure mercy, no sin, pure life, no death, pure heaven, no hell. I will comfort myself with the works of Christ as if I myself had done them. I will no longer concern myself about the outward appearance of holiness, St. James or Rome, rosaries or habits, praying or fasting, priests or monks. Behold how beautiful the confidence toward God that arises in us through Christ. You may be rich or poor, sick or well, yet you will always say, God is mine. 
I am willing to die, for this is acceptable to my father, and death cannot harm me. It is swallowed up in victory, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15:57. Not through us, but thanks be to God, said he which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, although we must die, we have no fear of death, for its power and might are broken by Christ our Savior. So then, you understand that the gospel is nothing but preaching and glad tidings of how Christ entered into the throes of death for us, took upon himself all our sins and abolished them. He did not need to do it, but it was pleasing to the Father. He has bestowed all this upon us in order that we might boldly stand upon it against sin, death, Satan, and hell. Hence arises great, unspeakable joy such as the disciples here experienced. The text says, Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Not a Lord who inspired them with terror or burdened them with labor and toil, but a Lord who provided for them and watched over them the way a father is the Lord of his estate and cares for his own. Then first they rejoiced most on his account when he spoke to them, Peace be unto you, it is I. And when he had shown them his hands and feet, that is, his works, all of which were to be theirs. In the same manner, he still comes to us through the gospel, offers us peace, and bestows his works upon us. If we believe, we have them. If we do not, we do not have them. For the Lord's hands and feet really signify nothing but his works, which he has done here upon earth for men. And the showing of his side is nothing but the showing of his heart, in order that we may see how kind, loving, and fatherlike his mind is toward us. All this is set forth for us in the gospel, as certainly and as clearly as it was revealed and shown bodily to the disciples in our text. And it is much better that it is done through the gospel than if he now entered here by the door, for you would not know him, even if you saw him standing before you, even much less than the Jews recognized him. The true way to become righteous is not by human commandments, but by keeping the commandments of God. Now nobody can do this except by faith in Christ alone. From this flows love that is the fulfillment of the law, as Paul said in Romans 13.10. And this does not result from the exercise of virtues and good works, as was taught up to this time, which produced only true martyrs of Satan and hypocrites. But faith makes one righteous, holy, chaste, humble, and so forth. For as Paul said to the Romans, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, that just shall live by faith. Your works will not save you, but the gospel will, if you believe. 
Your righteousness is nothing but Christ's righteousness avails before God. The gospel speaks of this, and no other writing does. Whoever now wishes to overcome death and blot out sins by his work says that Christ has not died. As Paul said to the Galatians, if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. And those who preach otherwise are wolves and seducers. This has been said of the first part of our gospel to show what our attitude is to be toward God. Namely, we are to cling to him in faith. It shows what true righteousness is, righteousness that is pleasing to God, and how it is attained, namely, by faith in Christ, who has redeemed us from the law, death, sin, hell, and the devil, and who has freely given us all this in order that we may rely upon it in defiance of the law, death, sin, hell, and the devil. Now we will see how we are to conduct ourselves toward our neighbor. This is also shown to us in the text. Of love to your neighbor. The Lord said, As my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. John 20, 21. Why did God the Father send Christ? For no other purpose than to do the Father's will, namely, to redeem the world. He was not sent to merit heaven by good works or to become righteous. He did many good works, yes. His whole life was nothing else than a continual doing good. But for whom did he do it? For the people who stood in need of it, as we read here and there in the Gospels. All he did, he did for the purpose of serving us. As my Father hath sent me, he said, even so send I you. My Father hath sent me to fulfill the law, take the sin of the world upon myself, slay death and overcome hell and the devil, not for my own sake, for I am not in need of it, but all for your sakes and on your behalf, so that I may serve you, so you will do so also. By faith you will accomplish all this, it will make you righteous before God and save you, and likewise overcome death, sin, hell, and the devil. But you are to show this faith in love, so that all your works may be directed to this end. You are not to seek to merit anything by works, for all in heaven and on earth is yours beforehand. But you are to serve your neighbor by works. For if you do not give forth such proofs of faith, it is certain that your faith is not right. Not that good works are commanded us by this word. Where faith in the heart is right, there is no need to command good works to be done. They follow by themselves. But the works of love are only an evidence of the existence of faith. This was also the intent of Peter when he admonished us in 2 Peter 1.5 to give diligence to make our faith sure and to prove it by our good works. But good works are those we do to our neighbor in serving him. And the only thing demanded of a Christian is to love. 
for by faith he is already righteous and saved. Paul said in Romans 13.8, O no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. Therefore Christ said to his disciples in John 13, 34, 35, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. In this way we must give proof of ourselves before the world so that everyone may see that we keep God's commandments, yet not as if we would be saved or become righteous by them. So then I obey the civil government, for I know that Christ was obedient to the government, and yet he had no need to be. He did it only for our sakes. Therefore I will also do it for the sake of Christ on behalf of my neighbor and for the reason alone that I may prove my faith by my love, and so on through all the commandments. In this manner, the apostles exhort us to good works in their writings, not because we become righteous and are saved by them, but only because they prove our faith, both to ourselves and others, and make it sure. The gospel continues, Receive ye the Holy Ghost, Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. This power is here given to all Christians, although some have appropriated it to themselves alone, like certain priests have done. They declare publicly and arrogantly that this power was given to them alone and not to the laity. But Christ here spoke neither of priests nor of monks, but said, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whoever has the Holy Spirit, power is given to him. That is, to everyone who is a Christian. But who is a Christian? He who believes. Whoever believes has the Holy Spirit. Therefore, every Christian has the power as much as priests and monks have, in this case, to forgive sins or to retain them. Do I hear then that I can institute confession, baptize, preach, and administer the Lord's Supper? No, no. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14.40, Let all things be done decently and in order. If everybody wished to hear confession, baptize, and administer the Lord's Supper, what order would there be? Likewise, as everyone wished to preach, who would hear? If we all preached at the same time, what a confused babble it would be, like the noise of frogs. Therefore, the following order is to be observed. The congregation will elect one who is qualified and he will administer the Lord's Supper, preach, hear confession, and baptize. True, we all have this power, but no one will presume to exercise it publicly except the one who has been elected by the congregation to do so. But in private, I may freely exercise it. For instance, if my neighbor comes and says, Friend, 
I am burdened in my conscience. Speak the absolution to me. Then I am free to do so. But I say it must be done privately. If I were to take my seat in the church and another and all would hear confession, what order and harmony would there be? Let me give an illustration. If there are many heirs among the nobility, they elect one, with the consent of all the others, who alone serves as administrator over the estate on behalf of the others. If everyone wished to rule the country and people, how would it be? Still, they all alike have the power that he who rules has. So it is with this power to forgive sins and to retain them. But this word, to forgive sins and to retain sins, concerns those who confess and receive more than those who are to impart the absolution, and thereby we serve our neighbor. For in all services the greatest is to release from sin, to deliver from the devil and hell. But how is this done? Through the gospel, when I preach it to a person and tell him to appropriate the words of Christ and to believe firmly that Christ's righteousness is his own and his sins are Christ's. This, I say, is the greatest service I can render to my neighbor. The life that one lives only for himself and not for his neighbor is cursed. Conversely, the life that one lives not for himself but for his neighbor and serves him by teaching, by rebuke, by help, and by whatever manner and means is blessed. If my neighbor errs, I am to correct him. If he cannot immediately follow me, then I am to bear patiently with him, as Christ did with Judas, who had the purse with the money and transgressed and stole from it. Christ knew this very well, yet he had patience with him, admonished him diligently, although it did no good, until he disgraced himself. So we are to give heed to do everything on behalf of our neighbors and ever to be mindful that Christ has done this and that for me. Why should I not also, for his sake, freely do all for my neighbor and see to it that all the works you do are directed not to God, but to your neighbor? Whoever is a ruler, a prince, a mayor, a judge, do not let him think that he is a ruler in order to gain heaven or to seek his own advantage, but to serve the public. And so with other works I assume to do for the good of my neighbor. For example, if I take a wife, I make myself a captive. Why do I do this? So that I may not do harm to my neighbor's wife and daughters, and thus may bring my body into subjection and so forth with all other works. Thus we find two thoughts finely portrayed in this gospel, as in almost all the gospel lessons, faith and love. Through faith, we belong above to God, through love below to our neighbor. May God give us his help so that we may grasp this truth. Amen.
That was Martin Luther, portrayed by David Mink. Part two of a two-part series. Yes. Law, faith, and love to your neighbor. Mm -hmm. So we now have the full thought. Yes. Kind of a complicated thought because he's bringing his listeners from one place to another place in their understanding of law and what law is and what love and love is. Yeah. He has to get them past the, the feeling of, well, I have to work out, I have to work my salvation, even though the Bible says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's not what he's talking about. And that's not what it means. No. It's <laughs> like, I got to get them past this idea of all of my works will appease God somehow. Yes. Or all my coins in the plate that passes at church will make God happy. I have to get them past that without completely losing the law. He doesn't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. He says the law is necessary for the gospel so that we see, I can't do this. I need God's help. I need God's grace. Once he's done that, he can talk about love for your neighbor, which I thought was an interesting turn. Mm. I mean, I know we hear it all the time that we should love our neighbor, but the fact that you can start with the law and say your works aren't going to save you. Oh, and by the way, here's your good works Mm. you're supposed to do toward your neighbor. Those good works towards your neighbor are out of the heartfelt gratitude Mm -hmm. for the gift given. And that is a different love for your neighbor than, let's say, someone who's never heard of the gospel and their love for their neighbor. And that's a good love. Absolutely a good love. However, it only goes so far. Yeah. Because your fund of love to give from is only as big as you are. Mm. But when you are filled with the Spirit of God, it is a limitless love it would still be constrained by your mortal requirements, sleep, food, et cetera. Right. Right. But it's a fully different kind and it makes a mark. Yeah. This is something he said, where faith in the heart is right, there is no need to command good works to be done. They follow by themselves. The works of love are only an evidence of the existence of faith, which is a healthy, purely biblical way to look at our works, uh, to understand that you know, our faith without those kind of works would be a dead kind of faith. It would be faith, but it'd be kind of dead. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and back to transactional. And by that word, I mean, I'm going to give because I get something from it. Mm, I'm I'm giving for a reason. And I don't know how many of our listeners might agree with this, but if someone has given to you from that kind of a love, I think you know it. Mm. That, that That was an okay gift, but I see that what you wanted from that was something. A really great way to be given to is someone who just says, here, you need this. And they walk away with nothing. It's a very different kind of giving. Mm. I give because you need, not because I'm getting something back. In our research and preparing for this sermon by Martin Luther, I wanted to go to biographical sources that were Catholic and Protestant. Good. And I found that in some way, and it's going to be hard to summarize this, but that the Catholic sources suggests that Martin Luther was happy and fine so long as he was within the Catholic tradition. The more he questioned it and challenged it, the more distressed and distraught and joyless and uh, angry he got, which is that portrayal we like we hear often, you know. Yes. And the Protestant side is uh, he was angry and confused and frustrated at all the Catholic, uh, you know, traditions. And then he found the gospel. And though he still struggled yeah. and still was was just... I want to say, I would say angry too. I mean, I'd be angry if I felt that everything around me was fighting against the scriptures and I'd read the scriptures. I'm yeah. like, no, 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 that's not how it's supposed to be. This is the gospel. This is the truth. And being passionate about getting that into the people's hands, getting it in their language so that they can hear the truth of God's word. It's just fascinating to me. Um, and today, 
every resource imaginable puts scripture in our fingertips. I just, God help us that we would always go to the scriptures, that we would study them, that we would read them continually, because we're otherwise we're just going to go with whatever's popular. We always will. We will drift. Yeah. You have to come back. And even the traditions. There was something about uh, something Luther said that the word of God is the truth, even if it disagrees with the church. Yes. Even if what the church is preaching has been wrong, you have to go with the word of God. Right. And that's going to be crucial, in my opinion, now and in the coming years. Yes. Especially as we are in this moment of history, we each have to continue with that. It's more important than ever yeah. because there's drift everywhere. Yeah. And that is sufficient reason to change how you engage the church. God says you need to engage it. You need to be in fellowship, but you've got to be in fellowship with Bible-believing, bibliocentric belief and practice. I don't normally do this kind of a challenge, right? That's not my job here. But if you go to church on a Sunday morning and you've never heard the gospel, go to your pastor, go to the church leadership and ask them, what is this that I'm hearing mm-hmm. about works not saving me? Mm-hmm. What is this that I'm hearing about loving my neighbor? What does that mean? And if you're a pastor, I hope you're paying attention. That's all I have to say. This has been History's Greatest Sermons, an unshackled production of Pacific Garden Mission, produced and directed by Timothy Gregory. To hear more unshackled content, you can download our app. Get it for free at any of the major app stores. For more information, visit unshackled.org. Join us next time as we experience another one of History's Greatest Sermons.